I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Ben, did you say I'm restarting right now? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I, I understand. I actually accidentally say right meow about 75% of the time in normal conversation now because it's become habit. Hopefully I don't do it with clients too often, but it has definitely happened. Uh, I have the same problem with saying I wrecked them instead of I reckon. Instead of I reckon. Mm-hmm. JJ, that's worse. I know. That's worse than right meow. And much worse, but that being... Um, Nobody's taking me out, so I guess it's okay. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Well, so today is snack episode two of season two, and we're going to talk about alternative methods for treatment of feline urethral obstruction. If you have not listened to the first feline obstruction episode, please stop what you're doing and go back and listen to that one first, because a lot of what we're talking about today is probably going to refer back to that episode and I think it'd be better if you listen to that one first. So today we're going to talk about sort of two primary ways that clinicians have managed cases when the owners, I mean, usually it's that they can't afford full treatment. Okay. I've never known of anyone to decline it for any other reason than money. JJ, have you? Nope. Yeah. So <laughs> when owners cannot afford the cost of full treatment for urethral obstruction, what are we going to do? because the cat will die if we don't do something, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is a method called serial decompressive cystocentesis. And there's actually a published study about this. So I'm going to go over what happened in the study, and then we're going to talk about it first. The study is a protocol for managing urethral obstruction in male cats without urethral catheterization. It was published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association in December 2010. The authors are listed as Edward S. Cooper, Tammy J. Owens, Dennis J. Chu, and C.A. Tony Buffington. The study is out of The Ohio State University. The study included a population of 15 cats who had presented for urethral obstruction and for which standard treatment was declined by the owner. Leading off, let's talk about cost, because the cost is actually published in the study. I feel comfortable talking about cost in this situation. <laughs> so they put some specific numbers. So the study cites typical cost of standard treatment at that time, remember 2010, so like almost 11 years ago now, was $1,200 to $1,800. And participants in the study were charged a set fee of $350. So that's the cost difference that we're talking about here. There were some patients who were excluded from the study. So let's talk about who they did not allow to participate. Cats with bradycardia, that is slow heart rate and a sign of hyperkalemia, as we discussed in our last episode. Those cats were excluded. No cats with a heart rate of less than 120 at initial presentation were allowed to participate. No cats with hypothermia or a temperature less than 96 degrees at presentation were included. Cats with uroliths visible on radiographs, so like urinary stones there, 
Uh, they took a survey lateral radiograph uh, at admission that included the penis to determine this. So if you had urinary stones, you were out of the study. Cats with a venous pH of less than 7.1, a.k.a. those that are already showing signs of metabolic acidosis. Those guys weren't allowed to participate. And cats with hyperkalemia who had a potassium greater than 8 milliequivalents per liter. For reference, the top of their reference interval is 5.9. So mild hyperkalemia was allowed, but severe hyperkalemia was not allowed in the study. Upon presentation, the kitty cats received buprenorphine and acepromazine. Ten minutes after medication, the penis was extruded, inspected, and massaged. <laughs> we talked about that last episode. It's really important to do that, even though it's funny. <laughs> there was one attempt to gently express the urinary bladder manually, and if no urine was removed successfully, a cystocentesis with a 22-gauge, 1.5-inch needle was performed. Now, they didn't just stick it like straight with a syringe, like if you were doing just a quick UA. These bladders are really huge, and we've got to drain a lot of urine from them. They connected it to an extension set. So the setup is going to be the 22-gauge inch-and-a-half needle connected to an IV extension set connected to a three-way stopcock within a 20-mil syringe on the side. So that way you can guide the needle into the bladder, and whoever is sticking is going to hold it ultra-still and then you're going to have, I usually, so I'll just say straight off the bat, I've done this before, okay? So I personally, me, stick the bladder and hold it. And then I have a team of two other people, one to gently pet the kitty and tell it it's super cute and I love it. And the <laughs> other person to operate the stopcock and the syringe. The person operating the stopcock and the syringe has to be really good at that. Because if you aren't really good at it, you can blow air into the bladder. You can blow urine out the side. Like it, you know, you mm -hmm. have to be like smart about the three-way stopcock. So I always have everyone practice because I'm anal retentive several times before we do it on the actual kitty. Also, the person changing the syringe and doing the three-way stopcock and the whole thing can't be like one of those people that fumbles around and moves stuff everywhere. The more wobbliness the more the needle is going to move around, even if I'm holding it. So they need to be someone who's got a steady hand that you put on this. Sorry. Okay, back to the study. Cats were given 100 to 200 mils of sub-Q normal saline, depending on hydration and the degree of azotemia. The cats were not catheterized. So no IV catheter, no urinary catheter, no IV fluids administered. They were placed in a quiet, dark environment in the hospital without any dogs. And spontaneous urination was assessed every eight hours. Additional doses of acepromazine and buprenorphine were given as needed. Cystocentesis was performed up to three times daily. Most cats only had it done once daily, though, if you read the study. I'll say most cats with a successful outcome only had it done once a day <laughs> during the study. The cat's typical diet and water was offered every eight hours. And additional sub-Q fluids once or twice daily were offered depending on need. Metatomidine was given once daily starting 24 hours after initial exam to provide more sedation and urethral relaxation. And success in the study was defined as spontaneous urination within 72 hours, followed by a successful discharge from the hospital. Cats were discharged with medicine for five days, including acepromazine and buprenorphine given about every eight hours. Owners were given instructions about ways to increase the cat's water consumption, proper number of litter boxes, and environmental enrichment. 
11 of the 15 cats were considered successfully treated. Four of the kitties were unsuccessfully treated, and those included three cats that developed uroabdomen, so urine leakage into the abdomen, and one cat who developed hemoabdomen, so blood leaking into the abdomen. Necropsy showed no evidence of spontaneous bladder rupture, only severe bladder disease. So in the study, their conclusion is that it wasn't necessarily the cystocentesis that caused the uroabdomen, but just like such severe bladder disease and necrosis that the bladder just couldn't hold the urine anymore, which is really upsetting. The cats who were treated unsuccessfully were those with a significantly higher serum creatinine at presentation. So the mean serum creatinine levels for successful patients when they first measured them was 4.4, while it was 10.1 for unsuccessful patients. So the higher the creatinine, the lower your chances of having a successful recovery with this method. Cats who were treated unsuccessfully required more cystocentesis. (laughs) I guess that's the plural of cystocentesis. That's a fun word. Yeah. than cats who were treated successfully. And there was no relationship noted between age, weight, rectal temp on presentation, heart rate on presentation, or respiratory rate at initial exam between the unsuccessful and the successful treatment groups. The conclusion of the study was that this type of therapy is a reasonable thing to consider when full treatment is not financially possible, and euthanasia is the only other potential choice. So, you know, here we're like, Uh, Essentially, four out of the 15 cats were, you know, unsuccessfully treated. That's around 25% failure rate. I mean, not that's just off the top of my head math there, which is not great. But at the same time, like if you can't do full treatment, the other option you have is humane euthanasia, which is 100% fatal. So I think Mm -hmm. we have to kind of consider these options carefully. Um, Also remember that ultra sick animals were not included in the study. So no, so ultra-sick animals aren't skewing these results at all. This is like, you're doing pretty good type of UO cats. Uh, it only works about 75% of the time. But still, 75% is okay. Um, <laughs> so JJ, mm. what are your thoughts about this? Well, one thing I didn't see in there at all was reoccurrence issues. Mm-hmm. So if you say, for instance... Um, you know, have a successful unblocking, they go home, you know, the client is is out less money than if um, they had done the full treatment. But kind of like with our uh, patient last week, George, uh, reblocks in within a week to a month. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it would, are we doing a cat, are we doing the cat a favor here? Because I mean, this is, this is not a comfortable situation. And if the client can't afford to do the full treatment, um, they probably can't afford to do the PU surgery. So I just worry like down the road. I'm like, yes, you might have the, you know, the unicorn that never blocks again and everything is sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. But so that's one of my concerns. And I, I think it's a completely valid concern. And one that needs to be discussed with the owners carefully. So to me, if we decide to do this type of thing, it's a one and done situation. So if Mm -hmm. your cat does not respond to this and reobstructs, I can't see putting the cat through all this again. You know, like I just that to me is tough. Same. 
So that's a tough one. And I think it's going to kind of come down to like what your boundaries are as a clinician. I think if on this, if you want to establish up front, look, we're going to try this once. And if the cat reobstructs, it's euthanasia time. If we can't get some funds together, then that's the boundary you have. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. And if they want to go someplace else to someone who will try this kind of thing multiple times, then, then they can do that. But you, nothing is forcing you as a clinician to do something that's outside of your ethics. You know, yeah, so that's gotta, the good news is that you as a clinician get to decide what you feel is appropriate and what's not. No one can force you to do something that you don't think is right. You got to be able to sleep at night. Yeah. I also kind of want to briefly kind of touch on it. Sometimes, and I've been guilty of it in the past, and I've tried to be better about it is, you know, judging clients that are in the predicament that they have to make this decision. Mm hmm. We have no idea what has happened in someone's life. They may have gotten the cat when they were financially stable and something has happened that they're no longer financially stable and yep. they're doing the best they can for that cat. And I mean, I, I myself have had to make practical decisions when it comes to pets versus, you know, going into huge amounts of debt that's going to continue to deteriorate a financial situation. I mean, at the end of the day, there's worse things than death. And, um, you know, I, I totally agree with the whole, you get one Hail Mary and if it doesn't work, then, you know, you, you want that cat to have a good quality of life and spending multiple day, multiple days in the hospital. Yes, you're on pain medication, but you're still getting poked in the bladder repeatedly. And it's just not, not a good existence. And if we're going to continue to do that over and over again. That's not a good, that's not good quality of life for the kitty. I don't know. I just kind of wanted to put it out there to, you know, be careful when it comes to judging clients. Making practical decisions is, it's hard for the client. It's going to be hard for the staff too, especially if they're emotionally invested in the patient. But sometimes those decisions have to be made. And at the end of the day, it's the client's decision. And we have to respect that decision. So this study was, you know, a little over 10 years ago now. Uh, so the price that they mentioned for this sort of therapy, I think, would need to be adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. You know, they, let me look back up and see what they said. Cost-wise, they were saying $1,200 to $1,800 to treat a UO cat. Um, I think in the university setting, that's definitely higher now. Uh, <laughs> of course it would be because 10 years have gone by. That's just the way it is. So. We're not going to get into specific costs of what it would be now. I'm just going to say blanket. This is probably higher now. As far as the 350 charge, again, we would need to do higher now. But even if you made it as high as, say, something like $500 for the amount, you know, if they're into the hospital multiple days, it, it might be difficult for a private practice to justify charging that amount. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's what you have to kind of kind of look at. I think you have to look at your individual clinic, what your clinic does as far as charging for different things. You know, this type of method may be as expensive as civil treatment, depending on, you know, at the end of the day, what all is going to be charged for. Mm -hmm. So I think that is an individual clinic, individual internal review that's needed to decide, are we going to offer this therapy if so, what limits are we going to put on it? Who's comfortable with it? Who's not comfortable with it? And all of those things. You would really need to have a preset like price determined already. So 
you know, I'll say I have used a version of this protocol before with some success, but I've done it on an outpatient basis. So here, I'll just go out on a limb and say, here's how I have done that. I always warn the owners that it's not, that it might not work. And I'm very selective with clients. Okay. So I have them sign a waiver and acknowledgement that this is not ideal treatment and, you know, basically like a hold harmless agreement. I have them sign documents that say I have declined treatment. I understand that I have declined the best care. Death can result. Like I, these documents are going to be very explicit. Your cat could die. The cat's bladder could rupture. Yada, yada. Like all of the potential issues. Mm-hmm. I only offer it in cats who are not terribly ill yet. Honestly, in our cat George from last week, I wouldn't have offered it because he had been blocked for a couple days, it sounded like, and he was already kind of laying around and lethargic. That's going to be a no for me because I'm not going to know from where I'm standing as the clinician, is this cat super hyperkalemic and things like that? And if we look at the study, you know, they did things like testing lab work. They did acid base. They did radiographs. Well, hell, by the time we do all that... (laughs) Yeah. We're already out of our whatever set fee, you know, so easy. Yeah. So like I am, <laughs> uh, that's going to be tough. So I think uh, bridging this into real life, we have to realize that like this is going to be a Hail Mary cat. You're going to have to get better or something, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then and, and go with it. But so I only offer it for cats who aren't terribly ill. And I have them come in once a day for sub-Q fluids and cysto. And I use buprenorphine and acepromazine like they described in the study. And occasionally I've used uh, alprazolam as well. And I don't have numbers because, like, I can't go back and, like, remember exactly how many times. So I'll say I've offered this a few times, meaning, like, less than 10. And I've had a few of those cats recover, uh, meaning, like, less than five. When I go over it, many owners still opt for humane euthanasia. And that's completely fine. Mm Mm-hmm. But there are some people who have ethical objections to humane euthanasia, don't feel like it's a thing that they're allowed to do. And your re- religious reasons, ethical reasons, uh, sometimes people just can't accept that that's a possibility. And so they want some other way, but they just don't have any money and they can't get approved for care credit. And, they, you know, they don't have the, we'll say, the setup required to do something like scratch pay. So they're just out of options. So so I will say that I have done this. I think to do it, you have to be just 100% comfortable that the clients and you are on the same page. So you want to really fill them out, just be really careful about who. I mean, I hate to always approach things from a liability standpoint, but hell, mm-hmm. the reality is that people are litigious. And um, some of the things that have been in the news we're recording this in in late March. A couple of cases have been in the news recently, not about urethral obstruction, but about other things that um, people have reported vets for, and they're they're going up and having to defend their licenses against things that I think are completely insane. <laughs> like <laughs> there's this one where um, these people adopted this dog who was obese, and they've it was like really great. They've had it lose a lot of weight. That's fantastic. Well, now for some reason they've they've said like, uh, well. We really think that this was an abuse case before, so we're going to go after the veterinarian who used to see the dog when it was with its old owners. Was the veterinarian feeding the dog? That veterinarian didn't report this as animal abuse, so they 
should have their license looked at and potentially taken away. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? You know what would happen if I called animal control and was like, this dog's obese. They would laugh. Do you know how many fat animals? Because I've reported some shit before, like some scary shit before, and animal control has not done anything. So like, anyway. Mm-hmm. So in this society that we live in, where people are just like, apparently go after veterinarians licenses for the dumbest shit, then I think that you do have to be ultra selective and like sign all the documents, disclose everything. You better, if you do this, you'd better document the shit out of everything. I'm talking about four pages of notes, 100%. Do not lose the thing. Scan it, mm-hmm. copy it, staple it, you know, like all the stuff that you have to do. <laughs> Send the owner home with a copy. Like, if you do this, you have to be 100% confident that you have a good relationship with this owner and that they understand that this is a risk. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I have done it. And JJ, <laughs> you know that I tend to be pretty risk averse. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, yep. possible issues with cystocentesis. Bladder rupture? Maybe. That one study said, you know, we think that the bladder rupture didn't really happen, that it was just leakage because the tissue was so damaged. But so we'll say maybe bladder rupture with cysto? Question mark. And then vagal episodes would be the other one. So vagal episodes can occur in any cat who's getting a cystocentesis for any reason. They don't have to be blocked, okay? And they're ultra flipping scary. <laughs> and the cat vagals out on you. I mean, occasionally they like die. But like mm-hmm. most of the time they start vocalizing. They'll like get real drunk. They like hypersalivate. And you can tell like this cat's in distress and you got to put them on oxygen. And that eventually it will kind of calm down. I personally get vagal episodes every time I vomit. So like if I vomit for some reason, then I pass out and I have to go to the hospital. It's a whole thing. But anyway, that can happen with cat cystos. And... It's more common if the bladder is super full or if the cat is stressed out. So you can say like, well, that'd probably apply to these cases. <laughs> stressed out cat plus a full bladder. No vagal episodes were reported in the study that we mentioned, but I just wanted to put that in there because I've just seen that happen. And so you just need to prepare the owners that it could happen and also prepare yourself and your staff because it's super scary when it does occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about the whole thing. I mean, I get it, but I'm just kind of like, mm. When you say you don't know how, how you feel about the whole thing, do you mean like doing that protocol in general? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, hey, there is hot debate about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hot debate. And and also about the the thing that we're about to go over. I texted JJ yesterday. I was doing some, <laughs> like, tying up the loose ends uh on our case research and stuff like that yesterday. And I texted her and I was like, girl, (laughs) I need to pop some popcorn for these comment sections, like on different message boards and stuff like that. (laughs) People are hot about this. So anyway, not for everyone, not for every owner, not for every pet, not for every vet. Yeah. This next one is even a little more. I know. Let's get on with it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So the other thing uh, that people have tried is the unblock and go home strategy. Now, there are no studies on this approach that I could locate. If anyone knows of any, please let me know and we will do an update to this episode. So the idea here is that you get the cat sedated or anesthetized, unblock it, and then you send it home without the hospitalization side of things. Uh, You do not send it home with the urinary catheter. Like you unblock the cat, flush it, you know, then withdraw the catheter and then send it home. 
Many people give sub-Q fluids before they go home. Sometimes people do diagnostics first and sometimes they don't. So sometimes they'll like do um, CBC Chem, UA, RADS, you know, the whole thing and say like, well, this cat isn't super sick and the owner can't afford the hospitalization part. So we'll unblock it and send it home and see how it goes. Sometimes it's a situation where the owners are like, I have no money and they just literally get the cat down, unblock it and then send it home. So that's the situation that we're talking about here. Um, so nah. JJ, yes. what are your thoughts about this? So, I mean, it's like a Hail Mary's Hail Mary. There's just so many things mm-hmm. that can go wrong. Um, yes. I feel like, you know, a cat that does well with this, that recovers great and never reblocks is even more of a unicorn. <laughs> Yeah, but, I mean, they do exist. Yeah, they, they do. do. Exist, but just not super common. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're going to pay for, I mean, if it's a situation where you're strictly just unblocking the cat and sending it home, like no lab work, so you have no idea what any of those levels are, that feels a little borderlining on, I mean, I I wouldn't be able to feel good about sending a cat home after you have unblocked it without having any idea what what the kidney values are, what the potassium levels are, because, I mean, are you just sending it home to die? Because that's, I mean, I know they're going to sign paperwork. I, I don't know. This one, this one bothers me a little bit okay. more. <laughs> it's allowed to. Yeah, you're allowed to feel that. I mean, like, that's that's my biggest thing is that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if you are doing the lab work and you are doing the radiographs, if you're paying for that, hospitalization is probably the least expensive in all those things. So I don't I don't like it. If it was my own cat and these were my options, I mean, me personally, I would opt for euthanasia. But um, not everybody is the same as me. I get that. I just. Yeah. Yeah, I agree that this is worrisome and um and i think all the people that do this uh that utilize this technique agree that it's worrisome i don't think anyone is standing there being like this is a great plan let's do this (laughs) you know again this is like the only other alternative is certain death so maybe we'll roll the dice kind of Mm -hmm. a thing um i will say that i have not ever utilized this strategy um it might work from the message boards I've read, there are enough times that it does work that some people will always offer it before euthanasia. I haven't tried it personally, mostly because if owners are spending the money to unblock, it isn't a ton more expensive to hospitalize it. But I think it might also depend on the pricing structure of your individual hospital. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing to kind of look at and see like what is charged for and that sort of a thing. Just like the other protocol that we talked about, there are some potential pretty big issues with the legal side so if you do this man always have the owner sign waivers and disclosures (laughs) because if you don't i think that you're opening yourself up to huge liability there Mm -hmm. and there has to be an understanding that the pet will need ongoing care like we talked about last week like these cats you can't just unblock them and then ride off into the sunset these cats need medicine they need special diets they need uh, water fountains they need coddling and it might happen again in fact i think half the patients i see with uo end up reblocking i mean mm-hmm. i i can't base that on numbers because i haven't kept track of it but just thinking back 
a lot of the time they reblock, you know, so that wouldn't help with this. Um, ugh, it's a tough one. Many clients who can't afford the full treatment might not be able to afford medicine for several weeks. Like I like to send two weeks of buprenorphine home. That's not cheap. Mm-hmm. And they might not be able to feed long term a prescription diet. And how many of us have had a patient that is well-maintained on prescription diet for years and then the owner stops it for a couple of weeks for some reason and then the damn cat reobstructs at that point. Like, mm-hmm. I've seen it all the time. Yep. So I think you have to factor in that. I think, JJ, what you were saying about, and it might have been a little bit earlier, not judging owners for financial situations and realizing that when people get a pet, that their situation can, I would say their situation will 100% no doubt change. Mm-hmm. If you think about 20-year lifespan of a cat, right? Yeah. How the hell much in your life changes in 20 years? Holy crap. A, a lot. lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And so I think I think not being judgmental is really important because, hell, I look back at the past 20 years of my life, like 20 years ago, so many things about my life right now, I would not have been able to guess. And so many good things about my life right now, I, I would not have thought that I wanted which is mm-hmm. weird, you know, like that's so yep. strange. But yep. anyway, <laughs> totally agree with that. <laughs> and and there's also the uh, um, situation where, you know, you and I have worked in veterinary medicine. So the idea that a cat can have this occur is not, you know, that's not something that it wouldn't occur to us. But if you have someone, especially if it's a first time cat owner that's not been around anybody that's ever owned a cat, um, or doesn't discuss that sort of thing. It just may be something that they didn't think to plan for. I mean, sure. it's really easy to kind of, you know, be in our position and say, hey, if you get a pet, you need to start them a savings account because shit happens. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's some people that can they afford general pet care? Yes. Um, but they may not be able to save money. I mean, I know I've been in the position where we weren't exactly paycheck to paycheck, but we not been able to save money at times and so sometimes that's that goes just along with the whole don't judge people because you don't know what shoes they're walking in and Mm -hmm. what happens to them can happen to you just as easily so that's true that's very true get a get a get a pedestal and get down off your high horse and then get off the pedestal and get on the ground and (laughs) everybody's position is different so i agree we can't judge but if you're listening to this and you don't have a pet savings account, please do do one. Even if it's just a small amount, it will help. Yeah. I think bottom line for both of these options is if you're thinking about offering these types of alternative methods, it would be a good idea to get some disclosure and waiver forms ready ahead of time, as well as discharge forms and client educational paperwork ahead of time and estimates ahead of time. That way you're not scrambling at the last minute. like. Nothing frustrates me more than finally arriving at a flip and treatment plan with these cats because owners often will take hours to decide what they're going to do because it's such a big financial decision, you know? Mm-hmm. So we've like given the cat pain medicine and then we've been a holding pattern for hours and we're finally coming up with a plan. And now, now I got to stop everything and from scratch come up with some sort of waiver for the owner to sign that covers every eventual outcome. And it's like really stressful. <laughs> so like if you're going to decide ahead of time, if you're going to offer these types of things, And it might be your clinic policy that you don't. I mean, it's completely up to you guys and how you guys feel. 
But if you are going to offer them, I would recommend getting packages together well ahead of time so that you can just be like, here is our official waiver. Here is this. Here is this. You know, maybe even have your attorney look over them. Mm -hmm. Might even be a good idea. Have a witness sign in addition to the owner. You know, like make sure that you dot all your I's and cross all your T's legally so that it's less difficult for an owner to come back later and be like, well, you didn't tell me X, Y, Z, even though you know you did. <laughs> anyway. Yep. That's just me being paranoid. But that's okay. Okay. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone's not out to get you. I know. CYA. All day. My um my ex-father-in-law used to say that all the time. He's a veterinarian in South Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> That's the other Dr. Grider. Okay. So, JJ, any mm -hmm. other thoughts about this topic? Other than it gives me anxiety and indigestion? No. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move from anxiety and indigestion into something good. So, what's a good thing, a positive thing for you this week? Today's Fraggle's birthday. <gasps> Woo! <laughs> Is she excited? She uh she got to eat first today, mm. and unfortunately, I did vacuum the house this morning, which is her least favorite thing ever. Oh, well. But I gave her lots of snuggles afterwards to make up for it. She she was forgiving. <laughs> Does she have big plans for tonight? Uh, yeah, she's going to go out and party. Party with her yeah. cat friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. all none of them, because she hates other mm. cats. Okay. No, she's probably going to be like her mama and fall asleep on the couch <laughs> in a pile of blankets. Well, my good thing is that it's been really pretty outside for the past couple of days. This is, we're recording this at the end of March. So by the time it comes out, it will be fully spring. But it is not yet fully spring <laughs> in Alabama, <laughs> but it's pre-spring. We've moved back, we've moved past fake spring. We had fake spring, then it got cold again. Now it's warm again. We're into pre-spring and it's time for me to start getting out in my garden and getting things overhauled, uh, doing all those things like uh, moving the raised beds around, getting new plots handled, doing the edging, doing the weeding, you know, getting all stuff ready for planting season. Remember, never in North Alabama, no planting until after tax day. That's very important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you listen to this in North Alabama, <laughs> don't let pre-spring or fault spring trick you i've done that before and it's lame so but yeah i'm excited about getting out in the garden and getting things together we were out yesterday kind of looking at you know what we wanted to do because we want to do some rearranging of the garden plots and there were honeybees in my backyard and i that was the first time i've seen honeybees in this location that we moved to hmm. uh, i've seen wasps and other things but never honeybees uh, but they were back this year so I was super excited. We planted last time all sorts of like bee friendly plants mm -hmm. because, you know, our honeybee population and the bumblebee population is way too low. And so it looks like it's working because I've got honeybees in my yard. Yeah. Super excited. Yeah. The Jones house. Ben just needs to mow the weeds. <laughs> we don't have grass. That's OK. You're out in the county. We have weeds and uh, <laughs> uh, a few bushes that are coming to life that probably need to be reshaped because they're they're growing back and look a little lumpy but you know we don't we don't have a whole lot of of fancy gardening at our house because i hate yard work i know you do 
Well, I love it, though. <laughs> I mean, I really do. There's some parts of it that I don't like as much, and I just hire someone to come help me because then that allows me to just do the parts I love. Mm-hmm. But, like, I mean, when I get when I get to a point where I have some money to blow, which we'll say, I don't know, maybe 10 years. We'll, we'll <laughs> see. But when I have some money to blow, when we win the lottery, I'm going to radicalize our front yard. <laughs> I'm going to put garden plots all in our front yard because the front yard is the place where we have full sun the most. Mm-hmm. It's just the best place to garden, but it's also like not culturally accepted to have gardens in your front yard. Everybody wants you to have a lawn, which is like terrible for the environment. But anyway. I say you don't have yeah, an HOA, money, do you? I don't, but the city of Huntsville has rules mm, yeah. that you have to abide by. But they tend to, like, not be able to tell very much if you put a fence up. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. A lot of the places, a lot of the houses in the place that I live have these massive, huge gardens in their front yards and stuff, but they're behind, like, a little picket fence. So it's, like, less something. Like, there's a um, city of Huntsville says, like, that no plants in your yard can be over X inches tall. But I'm like, vegetable plants grow taller than that, dude. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you want me to do. But uh, but anyway, other people have gotten around it by just like putting a fence in and being like, see, everything looks really cute. <laughs> the grass is super short outside of the fence. And then I don't think that they get bothered. But <laughs> So, yeah, that would be like my ultimate gardening fantasy would be to put up a picket fence and then set up like some arbors. Oh, yeah. Like first, though, we've got to we got to like set up additional watering stations. But then we would put in arbors and we put in raised beds in the front. And uh, like a, a trickle-based uh, watering system that you could just turn on and off at one source instead of having to hand water everything because that takes forever. Oh man, JJ, I would do so much stuff. <laughs> but anyway, I don't even. This know is the it. time of year where I sit outside in my yard and like dream about like <laughs> what can I do. So anyway, uh, I just that's my good thing. Avoid the outside because it's MFW <laughs> season. MFW, motherfucking wasp. <laughs> Actually, if you see them this time of year, they're probably um, queens building their own new nests. Yep, time to get the bug spray <laughs> and make them pay for existing. Oh my god, just don't kill the honeybees, please. No, no, this they're very gentle. I don't. Speaking of bees, okay, we need to have TikTok corner. Have you seen that girl on TikTok that um, removes bees for a living? I don't think so. It is. Amazing. Hang on, let me look up her handle. Um, she's spilled now off of TikTok and like major news outlets are starting to pick her up. I might but I have followed seen, her on TikTok before it was cool. I think I might have seen like somebody like duet one or something, because that sounds vaguely familiar. So the TikTok account is Texas Bee Works. And it's this lady who has a really like calm and pleasant voice. And she goes, and so say honeybees have built a nest someplace that's like not cool so like Mm -hmm. now they're in your compost bin or they're they've built a huge nest in your water meter or something like where oh we need to access this and not get swarmed (laughs) by angry bees so instead of having an exterminator come out and kill them because there's not many right now we need more bees you can hire someone like a bee professional to come out and remove the hive and take it back to, like to their house or whatever. Mm. And so she is one of those. And she goes out and people call her and are like, hey, our camper has bees in it, you know, or whatever. So she comes out 
and she like uh, removes the hive and loads them up into their new house and just like drives off with them. <laughs> it's crazy. In most of her videos, she doesn't have like all the super protective equipment. Like you see, beekeepers have like the veil and the this and like mm-hmm. all these things, and they look like like hazmat suit type <laughs> thing. But most of the time, she doesn't even wear that, and she's like. I mentally assess the bees and they're gentle. And so like, they're going to allow me to touch them without stinging them. And she'll just reach her damn hand down and scoop the bees up with her bare hand and put them in the hive. Oh, hell no. And she does it in like <laughs> such a, what is Ben? Is Ben freaking out? Yes. He just, popped, he just popped into the video very quickly with a horrified face and then went away. <laughs> You should see this is crazy. She's like, the bees are gentle and not trying to sting me. So I'm going to gently scoop them in. I'm like, I ain't scooping shit. Like, no. <laughs> no. Like, I ain't touching that. No. You can live in my yard, but I ain't touching you. Like, you just do your thing. I Don't get too I close remember, to me. I remember, like, I think what I saw was, like, Shia was trying to, I think of the one I saw, Shia was trying to locate or relocate some hive. And then they ended up, like, deciding to nest in her car or something. <laughs> Great. And she's like, I'm going to have to figure out how to deal with this because I need my car. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she, she loads them into this cute little hive, like, box thing. And mm-hmm. she, she takes their comb and puts it in the new box. And, like, oh, she finds the queen. She'll, like, look at, there's going to be, like, thousands of bees all walking over one another. And she's like, there's the queen right there. And I'm like, I still, you're pointing at it. I still don't see it. <laughs> she She'll put it in this little clip. Yeah. <laughs> She'll put in this little clip and move it. And then all the rest of the bees are like, oh, shit, we got to move, y'all. We moving. And then they go. It's the craziest thing. But anyway, <laughs> this lady is super cool, like ultra cool. I could not do what she does, I don't think. Mm-mm. Now she's scooping bees like it's... Scooping bees with her hand. A pile of dirt. Nope. But it's very relaxing to watch her videos. Mm. I followed her a while ago and like... I just sit there and watch her scoop the bees. She talks about it in a very calm way. I'm going to, I've identified the queen. Let me put her in a clip. And like, it's just a very nice. Anyway. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's TikTok corner. TikTok corner. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I got a brief TikTok corner. That's okay, you not TikTok near corner. as relaxing okay. or it's more embarrassing oh, and funny. Um, oh dear. So uh, I was recently at um, the house place trying to f- pick out different things for our, our new house. Okay, and so like you're talking about a place where you select finishes? Yeah, those are okay. finishes you have to pick out, like your cabinetry and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about light fixtures, and I was like, you know, I'm not super picky about light fixtures, except for I'm not a really big fan, and I, I was like, I don't know how else to describe it other than a ceiling titty. Yeah, boob lights. Yes. and I think that's a great way to describe it. I know exactly what you're talking about. They had never heard of it before, and they both started cracking up and laughing at me. And I was like, yeah, it's on TikTok. There's a whole song. And they're like, <laughs> what? What? There's a whole song? <laughs> there is a, song, a whole song where his dude starts singing kind of an R&B vibe. The same uh-huh. that he just wants to know if you have a ceiling titty. And he's like focuses on one when he does it, and it I got the closet I record in has got one. I'm looking up at it right now. <laughs> so good news is there's not really any place in the new house we're doing that's going to have a ceiling titty. So yay! Mm, you should do can lights. They're all it's majority can lights. Mm-hmm. The yeah. whole I think there's only like 
two that aren't like the dining room. There's some hanging lights over the island and that's and ceiling fans. And then there's the rest is all can lights. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. I invested when I built my house in more can lights and it was the best decision. But anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute because I haven't heard all the updates. So we'll talk about it after this. Okay. Law. All right, guys, if you have stories, mm-hmm. questions, concerns, situations, anything that you want for us to read, we'll be happy to take a look at it. Send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us uh, in social media on Facebook and Instagram at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.